brother. May God bless you as usual. Yeah, amen. Thank you. Thank you. Well, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and grab those. We're going to be in 1 Peter. In fact, I will say that at the beginning of every session we have, as we will be in 1 Peter through all of them. It's always a deeply humbling thing uh, for me to be here with you, even at the table I was sitting at, uh, to, to think that this room is, is full uh, of men and women primarily from across Europe is a staggering thing. Uh, we were at one time an American network with some friends overseas. Uh, and I remember a conversation we had about the future of Acts 29 and what we felt like the Spirit of God was doing in Acts 29. And it wasn't but about six years ago, uh, we shifted and said, no, 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 we're not going to be an American network. Uh, we're going to be a global network and begin to pray that way and work that way and organize that way. Uh, and so let me say a, a couple of things before we dive into the text. Well, one, uh, you being in this room uh, is the result of some prayers and fasting and longing uh, that, that probably uh, is unbeknownst to you until this very moment when I'm letting you know uh, there were some Europeans and some Americans who were very, very zealous to see the name and renown of Jesus Christ exalted and lifted high and praised, and and, and it and it happened on this continent. And so this is a humbling thing. And then the second thing I would love to say is that I have, uh, over the last three or four years, in particularly, learned more from the church in Europe than I have anywhere else in the world. The climate is changing in the United States of America, and you, my friends, are already there. Uh, and so even some of the ways we're organizing at the church that I pastor and the ways we're thinking about engaging cultures that more and more and more despises us, I have learned from you. So I don't see myself uh, as coming here today with anything other than the Word of God. I don't think I have much to teach you but the Word of God, but I have come eager to learn all the more from you and so eager uh, to be here with you today. I, I am stunned that rooms like this remind me that what God promised Abraham in Genesis 12 has happened. And what a privilege that is for us in 2018 to be in this room together with all these different languages, with all these different backgrounds springing up from some, you know, three, four thousand years ago, this promise to a nomad wanderer that was originally from Iraq. And yet here we are singing to Jesus, exalting Jesus, all filled with the same Holy Spirit. This is a moment we're having in here, whether or not we're able to see that moment or not. We have a tendency to come from our places with the problems of our places, with the hopes for our places. And yet what I want you to kind of drink in in our time together and our coffees together and our conversations together is that the God we serve transcends all those little spaces because all of them are his. Uh, and so we have been placed in domains and in societies that, that he is king and lord over, whether they know it or not. Uh, and so we get the, the, the pleasure of being gospel lights, being gospel salt uh, to a, a world, many of whom is going to come to faith in him in due time. And so First uh, Peter is the perfect book uh, uh, underneath all of that to kind of dig into and, and look and be encouraged. Uh, Peter is writing this as an older man, maybe even an old man, and I won't put any age brackets around that, all right? He's writing as an older man, uh, and he's encouraging now that 
he's uh, left Jerusalem. He's encouraging uh, a church across the Roman Empire. And we're going to see, I'm not going to put up a map and show you all the places he's encouraging, but, but it is well known uh, among uh, those in the Roman Empire that there is great persecution occurring. Uh, some of that persecution is physical, violent persecution. Must, much of it uh, is verbal persecution or uh, the kind of marginalization that would rob those who loved Jesus Christ from serving in significant pieces or, or portions of leadership in their local governments. In there, there was hostility towards those Christians. And it's in to this space that Peter begins to encourage the church of Jesus Christ. And many of us, whether on this side of the ocean or on my side of the ocean, are experiencing these same things in various levels in regards to hostility. And so Peter is going to speak right into that. And since we know the Word of God is inspired by the Spirit of God, God is speaking in to our situations via his written word. So, so with that said, I, I want to just read um, 1 Peter 1, and I'm going to read through um, chapter 2, verse 3. Uh, and then I want to start at the beginning, show you what the Spirit of God longs for us to know, cling to, bank on, and trust in, regardless of where we find our ministry in this moment. So this is the first letter of Peter, or as I think we would say over here, one Peter. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for the obedience to Jesus Christ and for the sprinkling with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy. He has caused us to be born again into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. So the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him now, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you and the things that have now been announced to you though through those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent 
from heaven, things into which angels long to look. I've always loved that sentence. If you've ever been to a, a funeral and, and somebody's like, they're, they're like an angel looking down on us. I'm always like, oh, no, 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 gosh. They, no, the angels wish they were us. We shouldn't wish that we were angels. Angels look at what we've got and like, man, how blessed are they? Right? The angels aren't the blessed ones. We're the blessed ones. This is Peter's argument here. Like the angels want to be us. We shouldn't want to be angels. And then there's a great uh, argument to those who are into kind of mysticism and, and like to play the cards and want to be angelic beings. We're like, angel, angelic beings are weak. We're going to be ruling and reigning alongside of Christ forever. What, why would you want to be what we would call in the United States junior varsity? When you could be varsity, like, why would you want that? Thank you, Douglas. Now, let, let's look where he goes now in verse 13. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves then with fear throughout your time in exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with the perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot." He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you who through him are believers in God and raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Having purified your souls by your obedience to truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flowers of grass. The grass, grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that we preach to you. Almost there. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander and like newborn infants long for pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Now I love the way that Peter is beginning this letter to those who find themselves in difficult situations and in difficult I mean places in the Roman Empire. They are persecuted, they are marginalized. It is not going overly well, right? They they've planted churches. There's only 50 people coming and they only come every once in a while. Uh, there's very little money to be had. It seems like the ground is extremely difficult. The paganism of the prevalent day makes swiping left on Tinder look like some weak kind of hookup culture. 
I mean, there are full-on pagan temples given over to sexual licentiousness. The church is being born from a type of um, wickedness that's hard for many of us to get our minds around in 2018. And here is Peter's word. Here's where Peter is trying to build up our confidence. And unfortunately, it's a space in which many people can get offended and misunderstand and want to uh, argue when really it should be that thing that roots our soul with great confidence in what Christ has accomplished for us on the cross. Do you, do you see where he wants them to put their hope? What is he Elect exiles. How did they get there? By the foreknowledge of God. Did you see it? Like, I'm not making it up. Like, I don't have an agenda here. I just read the text. Right? And so if you want to do some, some, some Greek work, you, you can go and you can look up this word elect. You can look up this word foreknowledge, and it, and it means elect, and it means to know beforehand. You can do that work in the Greek, and that's what you're going to find. So, so why, is, why is Peter trying to encourage their hearts in this place in particular, where I think it, it requires us knowing what we're talking about when we use these words? Right? So oftentimes we use these words, and you're like, well, if you believe that, why evangelize? Why? But he's going, no, no, no. Your whole confidence in God's finished work is rooted in this reality. And, and here's how he's going to argue. He's going to argue with election rooted in foreknowledge. Now, a lot of times when, when people are teaching or talking about foreknowledge, uh, it makes them uncomfortable. So they'll teach something like this. Foreknowledge is that God knew before who was going to choose to put their faith in him and therefore loves those that he knew beforehand would choose to put their faith in him. Now, there's some biblical problems with that. You have not solved anything. You have actually created a lot of other issues, right? Like namely, you're beginning to believe that the faith that you have was your faith and was not something given to you by the God who also is the one that extends faith. You didn't take your faith and put it into his grace. He granted you the faith to believe upon his grace. And I know if you're like, well, I don't know where you're getting that. Well, thanks for the question. I'm getting that from Ephesians 2, verse 8, that says this, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. So that even having the faith to believe in God's grace is a gift of God, so that no one in this room has anything to boast in but Christ and Him crucified. So we have no boast. I cannot tell you, do it like me, or act like me, or walk like me. I get to say, by the grace of God, go I. Right? And if, we, if we'd be shaped by this and, and formed by this, we begin to kind of grow in confidence that regardless of the season, regardless of the weather, I am secure because this is his idea, not mine. Now, I'm just telling you, brothers and sisters, like the plan I had for my life was to go to law school and to become a very wealthy man and to have nice cars and nice houses and a beautiful wife, maybe a couple of them. Oh, like y'all, uh-uh, I'm not letting that go. Like that ain't an issue here, right? Like you, you marry the young, hot woman and then, you know, she, you get a little older and then you divorce her and grab another one. Do they not do this in Europe? They do it in the States. So that, that was my plan. And so I can remember most of what I read. I'm pretty quick on my feet. And so I'm, that's where I'm going. And, and the Lord laughed at that when he saved me. And all of those gifts and all of that energy that was leaning towards licentiousness, the Spirit of God said, I'm going to take that, I'm going to harness it, and I'm going to point it towards the glory of Jesus Christ. And for the rest of your life, that's what you're doing, Matt Chandler. And that's what Peter is rooting us in here. Right? That this is God's idea that God saved you. You didn't save you. 
Now, you might have said, excuse me, excuse me, and walked down an aisle and shook a hand, but God did something in your seat that got you out of your seat. It was not the repetition of the pastor's prayer that saved your souls, brothers and sisters. It's not how that works, or we'd be witches. We don't have incantations. We have the Holy Ghost. And something happened in your seat. You heard the word, and something was pricked in your soul. And the pastor said, why don't you come up here if that's happening, and we'll pray for you. And so I'm not taking away from you your human experience of getting up and moving towards something. What I'm saying is the capacity to do so was divinely wrought in your soul. And to do that, we can keep talking about foreknowledge, right? And I'm aware that I only have 45 minutes, but I've been saving up time over the years. So I'm just, we're going to go for it. So I want to talk a little bit about foreknowledge. So um, it, it would be helpful for us to just kind of look at when the Bible talks about knowing what, what it's talking about, because all, all the word for means is before. So it means to know before. And if we've already said that what it can't mean is that God knew who was going to choose him, then then yeah, we, we've got to do something with what, what does that mean then? So I, I think you can do this by looking at how the word no is used in scripture. I could do this for a long time. I won't. In Amos 3, 2, you, you read this. You only, this is God speaking to his people. You only I have known among all the families of the earth. Now that text is problematic. And, and the reason that text is problematic, if we don't do something with the idea of, of knowing, is it seems that God then is blind to those he does not know. So he's saying in Amos, you alone have I known throughout all the families of the earth. We know that's not true. We know that God knows everyone always on earth. He is not inside of time. He is outside of time. Right? God is never late, and the future is not something that he knows about. It's a place that he is. And so on this front, we know that when he uses the word know here, he doesn't mean kind of know in some uh, kind of across the board sense, but that he knows them in a special way, that there's a special way that I know you that is different than the way I know everything. You with me? Okay. Matthew 7, 23, Jesus says that on that day, I will say, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Well, if Jesus doesn't know them, then how does he know they practice lawlessness? He's saying there's a type of knowing that is different than how I know everything, right? And, and then again, uh, I'll give you one more, uh, and this, this will probably help maybe even more than the others. In Genesis 4, verse 1, it says, Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain. Now there's a way to know, and then there's a way to know. And for the record, if you didn't know, um, Adam had already met Eve. They'd already met in chapter 2. They had walked around the garden together. Right, Adam had already sung a song about her. There was this beautiful kind of naked and unashamed knowing that was going on. And then in verse 1 of chapter 4, they knew each other. We all right? We are, I will not take this any farther than I have, all right? If you're confused, you need to get with someone and have them explain what I'm talking about right now. He, he knew her in an intimate way. 
Therefore, what we can kind of unpack here in how the Bible uses this idea of what God knows and does not know is there is a special way of knowing that is kind of an intimate, loving way that is different than how he knows everything there is to know, right? And so when Peter is saying to you, elect exiles, that you were foreknown, He's saying, listen, God has loved you, if we'd use Ephesians 2 or other texts, since before the foundation of the earth were laid. He loved you. He was for you. He was about you. He's shining his glory through you. You have not been forgotten. You have not been abandoned. You are my sons and daughters. Don't forget. That's how he begins. And then he moves from this knowing. What's this knowing producing? being sanctified by the Spirit. Now, now look right at me. Anytime Peter talks about sanctification, you need to pay attention. Why? Because most of us look at sanctification, ongoing sanctification, through a kind of Pauline lens. You know what I mean by that? Here's how most of us treat ourselves, expect of others, and lose heart. Paul is radically and in an instant converted to Christ by, catch this, Christ. You ever thought about that? Like Paul, who shared the gospel with you? Jesus did. I mean, that's a pretty amazing story, right? No, no one else gets that. Like, how'd you become a Christian? Oh, and Jesus, I was on my way to work and Jesus just showed up. And I'm guessing some charismatics might have that um, testimony. I ain't dogging them. Maybe they do. But uh, ultimately here, you've got, you've got Paul. And then when does he start preaching? Was it like 48 hours after his conversion? And then almost everything you read about Paul in the Bible, he's like wearing a cape and on kind of the highest building to live as Christ, to die as gain, right? Like you don't ever really see him struggle unless his struggles are like, you know, I was up in the third heaven. I just lost track of time. I was, he's just this guy that seems to never struggle. In fact, the only hint of it we get is actually in the book of Philippians when he says, not that I've already attained all these things. Now, what kind of guy has to say that? Like, right, who has to say, not that I've been made perfect? Paul. Peter didn't have to say that. Like, everybody knew Peter had not attained all of that. And and so when Peter, as an older man, is saying, don't lose heart, bank on God's for-loving election of your souls, we need to be dialed into the fact that, that sanctification is a lifelong journey. And it's filled with these epic highs and these low lows. Amen? They are filled with soaring successes and crazy failures. So hear me. If you've blown it, don't beat yourselves up. Get back up. Right? The gospel of God's grace is big enough for your struggles. Now, I would encourage you not to hide them, not lie about them, not live a duplicitous life. But man, brothers, I am far more, anytime Peter talks about sanctification, and I want to pay attention, because Jesus called him the devil. I would just think that would take the wind out of your sails. Like if you, you felt like, because he just did a really good thing, right? Nobody else is able to call Jesus the Messiah. They're like, ah, you know, John the Baptist or one of the old prophets or, you know, I don't know. Peter's like, no, you're, you're the Messiah. Blessed are you, Simon. I'm going to give you a new name, right? The Rock. Now, let's go to Jerusalem because I've got to uh, be delivered up and killed. No, you don't. Right? Wait, you just said he was the co-eternal son of God, and now you're rebuking him? This is sanctification. 
It's messy. It's slow. Anyone in, in this room thought they would be farther along at this point in their Christianity than they currently, currently are? Listen, the right answer is all of you. All right, like all of us thought we'd be a little bit farther than we are now. And, and it should reframe our perspective when Peter is saying, Peter is saying as an old man, you trust in the electing, foreloving knowledge of God around you and the Spirit of God to sanctify you. And then for what purpose? For obedience to Jesus. Do you see it? And by the way, God help us because we're in the first three verses. <laughs> right? For what purpose? For obedience to Jesus Christ. What does the Spirit in us accomplish over time, rooted in the four loving knowledge of God for us? Obedience to Jesus Christ. Being shaped into the image of the Son. Being transformed by the Spirit's power. Every high, every low, every win, every loss, every good day, every bad day, none of it wasted. Shaping conforming, moving us towards obedience until full obedience to Jesus Christ becomes the only beautiful pursuit worth chasing. Now look at me. It takes a lifetime to get there. And God's grace profoundly is present in today. Thank God. Um, when I got sick, uh, gosh, almost 10 years ago now, I had brain cancer. They told me uh, I was going to die. And, and when they do that, it, it kind of makes you a little anxious. So... So I just began, I mean, I went internal for a long time, just kind of wrestling in my heart. And, and here's, here's what I figured out, man. If it's not the grace of God, we are all in trouble. We are all in trouble. I mean, the heart is deceptive. What's ultimately um, motivating us is revealed over time and rarely in an instant. Almost everybody in this room has mixed motives. Amen? You don't have to say amen. You can put on the fake mask. Not I. But I'm telling you, everyone I've ever met has mixed motives at some level, and the Spirit of God reveals it over time and gives us the opportunity to repent of it and become more wholeheartedly devoted to Jesus Christ. It had better be His grace. And then after that, he, he moves into verses 3 through 5, and, and I love that. It's actually anchored there in verse 4. So if you want to look at verse 4, he, he says that they were given an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Now, I, I love this text. There's several things going on in this text, but there's a plea here to not bank on this world. All right, to not look around and take the temperature of the time and space that you are in, but to bet on an inheritance that is coming to you that is rooted in God's eternal power and glory and cannot be defiled and cannot be tainted and cannot be taken from you. So, so the question that's arising here in verse 4 is where are you betting your life? Where are you pushing in your chips? Because if you're pushing in your chips on having kind of a large, dynamic, vibrant church, well, man, maybe you're going to get that and maybe you're not going to get that. And if that's what you really want, then, man, I'm, I'm trying to love you. You want the wrong thing. Right? If you're pushing your chips in on this or on that, what, what's happening in this text is, hey, where are you betting? Where are you banking? And the plea from Peter was also the plea from Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount when he talks about money is to bank on glory and inheritance that's bigger than what you do because the inheritance goes to all the kids. Right? Not to a kid. It goes to all the kids. So the inheritance that you and I have coming 
per the grace of God rooted in his eternal predetermined love for us is not rooted in what you're able to accomplish for him wherever you are, but in you abiding and loving and walking in obedience to him. Isn't that good news? Like the guy with the church of 15,000 doesn't get a greater portion of inheritance than the guy with the church of 30. You know that, right? I mean, I know we know that, but do you get that? Like, right, when Tim Keller gets to glory, it's not like he has a special section. You get that, right? Man, there's, there's one hero in glory. It ain't anybody in this room. There's one that's sung to and exalted and marveled in and gazed at. What one person we want the autograph of. And then anybody here, anybody on earth, like, yeah, so he's trying to appeal here to the inheritance and he's starting to do something else. He's starting to tie their Gentile story into the greater story of being a part of God's people. These are promises that for a long period of human history were given to Israel. Then he moves to here. We're going to talk much more about this on the last day, but he talks about the strange blessing of suffering. That's verses six through nine. And I love this little phrase because this is an eternal mindset. He goes, <laughs> If for a little while, now what's a little while? Well, Paul, right? He calls it light and momentary. So, so what is it about Peter and Paul both who both kind of use this term of, of momentary and for a little while, and then Peter takes it a step farther, comma, if necessary. Have you ever thought about that, that, that suffering might just be necessary? Now, we don't like to think about it. We think about suffering as something that needs to be solved rather than a tool God will often use to refine us. Now, I have grown, the older I have become, I have grown more and more grateful for the 18 months where I endured radiation and chemotherapy. Now, I don't want to do it again, so don't, I'm not a crazy person, but I'm so grateful that the Lord in his mercy said, no, no, no. I'm keeping you on the tracks. I want to show you some things about your heart. And I want you to cling to me more than you currently are, despite the fact that you think you're clinging to me with all your might. It was a good grace of God. And, and here, I, I'm ready to just say it was for a little while and it was necessary. And, and then can we just agree that if we look at the expanse of eternity, any suffering is light and momentary? Any suffering is for a little while. So, so the way I've tried to help uh, the church that I pastor is oftentimes to ask this question 10,000 years from now. How big is this? So, so if we go 10,000 years from now, right? No, no one's here. No one's on earth. Look at me. Nobody even knows your name. Not even your family line. That, that's, that always helps me. That just really helps my great, 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 great grandson. He ain't going to have a clue about me, this place. It's just the way the world works. They'll have their own heroes at that time. If anyone's here, I pray not. 10,000 years from now, in glory, full, vibrant presence of Christ, right? No need for the sun, new heavens, new earth, glory. I think I'm going to look back on 2009 and go, man, that was a tough year. God. Man, I remember laying on the bathroom floor and trying to get up enough strength to pull myself up onto the toilet to vomit again. Man, that was brutal. And I'm not going to be thinking anything about that. 
And I think this is what the Bible's trying to help us understand when he says there's no remembrance of the former things. Because how could there be in light of the glory and grace of Christ, unfettered, nothing blocked, no need for faith, he's just there, right? And then he starts to, now in 10, through where I'll take us, starts to walk them through how they're tied into the overall story of God's redemptive plan, even as Gentiles. So we see after verse 13, so look there in verse 13, this really starts to happen. He starts to use all this imagery from Israel's story. Look at 1 verse verse 13, though. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So he's orienting them. All that I just promised you is coming and is happening, even in your suffering. Set your hope on, your discipline on, your angst on, your zeal on, that we're closer. And if he's making that argument then, how much more should we make it now? But if it was soon then, it's much sooner now. And then he starts to tie it together. In verses 15 through 16, you hear the echoes of God calling his people to holiness in Leviticus. Right? Be holy because I am holy. That didn't spontaneously explode onto the scene. That's God shaping his people. Now listen to me. The people of God are a moral people. I just feel like that's got to be said. There's such confusion around what's legalism and what's just the command of God on how to live your life. And it feels like regardless of the continent, once we say this is how one must behave, if they say they surrender to Jesus, we're met with the accusation of legalism. But God's plan has always been for his people to be conformed by his spirit and live upright moral lives. Not because we're prudes, but because we've been bought by the blood of Christ and God's way is always better. God's way is always better. And so every thou shalt and thou shalt not in the Bible is about our joy and his glory. Every one of them. God has not repressed us being weighted down and burdened is not his hope and plan for us, but life and life abundantly. So when God says, this is what marriage is like, this is what sex is like, this is how you should think about money, this is how you should think about your neighbor, this is what hospitality looks like, this is what generosity is like. This is, he, he's not trying to go, conform to this or pay the price. He said, I paid the price, now conform to this. That's different. That's different. God's not trying to rob me of sexual experience. He's trying to see my heart fully formed as a human being made in his image. When when he's telling me to be generous with my money and to view everything I have is ultimately his that I get to steward. He's not trying to rob me from comfort. He's trying to get me into comfort, right? He's letting me know, hey, all those nice things will not ultimately afford to you comfort. I've got comfort for you. Now give it all away. It's mine. Then in 17 through 24, you can see the imagery of the new Exodus and the true Passover, right? He's leading us out of slavery. That the the lamb without spot or blemish has died once and for all. There's no longer need for penance. We will not be doing the Passover once a year anymore. We will be doing communion as we gather to remind ourselves of the true Passover lamb. 
And so brothers, sisters, I don't know how you're organized. I would just do communion as often as possible to engage the hearts of men and women in your church around the true and better Passover. Man, if you want to throw out a Seder meal or something like that to celebrate and remember, there's nothing wrong with that, but, but a truer lamb has died. And then from there, we, we see in verses 22 through 25, these echoes of Isaiah and Jeremiah and the promise of the new covenant people. What Peter is masterfully doing here is the Gentiles who do not have root in the covenant. They, they do not have roots in the promises. This is a frequent argument of both Paul and Peter. He is wooing them into the story. I almost fell down there. He, he is calling them into, hey, hey, no, no, you are a part of the new covenant people. You are a part of the new Passover. You are a part of. You are a part of us. There is not a you and an us. There is us and we are the people of God. And then lastly here in two, one through eight, I only read through three. We're going to talk about this a lot tomorrow morning. You see that the new temple, the new temple, the new dwelling place of God is now the people of God. Not, not that the nations would come to the temple, but rather the nations would become the temple with me on that? So you and I have not journeyed to Jerusalem. We are not in Jerusalem. Jerusalem has journeyed to us and is in us. The holy city is a people, but I can't preach tomorrow morning's sermon just yet. Now, with my last few moments here, I want to kind of end on this note. In 2016, um, which now appears to have been a profoundly powerful year in Acts 29. Um, the European conference was um, scheduled in Rome. So came over to Rome and man, it was a great few days. And, and after um, the last session ended, uh, we, we did, not just me, but even a lot of the Europeans just toured, right? We just did the tourist thing. And so we, we went and walked the Colosseum. Uh, and that three hours was this profoundly spiritual moment for me. Um, and, and so as we walked to the Colosseum, plus I, th I think it cost 20 euros, something like that, like 20 bucks. The, I think the euro and dollar were, were right next to each other. I don't know what they are today. They, they were right next to each other. So, so 20 bones. And so I uh, spent $20 and I'm walking around uh, the Colosseum. We had a great guide who was explaining this is where this came from, this is where this came from. And, and they, they robbed the, the temple. One of the things they did with all the wealth in the temple at Jerusalem was, was to come and, and build the Colosseum with that. And then ultimately, it was the elite Romans coming to Christ that led to the downfall of the gladiatorial games. So, so here's what was happening in my soul as we were touring the ruins of Rome. Um, Rome, despite what Americans think, uh, is the most powerful nation the world has ever known. Right? For 1,500 years, they ruled from India to England, or vice versa, depending on where you live. Right? They, so that, that is a landmass that is unbelievable for the ancient world. And they ruled it ruthlessly and they ruled it violently. And any chance that Hollywood or anyone else has to kind of make Rome look like they were humane uh, is to ignore history. They were a brutal regime and for 300 years sought to kill us off, sought to destroy us for 300 years. So, so as an American, it's, it's easy for me to say this. We ain't even 300 years old yet. We're still in diapers with all this make America great. You're like, no, 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 no. We, listen, they're, they're like Rome would just smirked 
at that, that whole notion. Roman has been like, oh, that's so cute, right? Uh, and, and so uh, I'm in the, the ruins of the Colosseum and maritime prisons just uh, across the way where Paul would have been imprisoned, where Peter was more than likely beheaded. And here I am. And, and so you've got this kind of massive, I mean, wonder of the world and this empire that's set to destroy us for 300 years. And what we, what we know about the Christian church through the first 300 years, through the first three centuries, is that the church of Jesus Christ grew by about 30% every year for 300 years until uh, by the time Constantine becomes Rome, uh, Roman's uh, new emperor, 51% of the Roman empire calls Christ king. Now, let, now catch this. Of all the data that we can find from the first three centuries, from church fathers, anyone else, there's not one treaty, not one document around evangelism. Nothing. No evangelistic training program for the early church. No, hey, uh, as part of your membership cohort, here's what we want to do before you become a member. We want to train you in evangelism. We want to train you in... There's nothing. And yet, the church, 30% a year for 300 years in some of the most hostile conditions imaginable, exploded. And, and here's what struck my heart. What struck my heart walking through the ruins of the Colosseum, kind of the crown jewel of the Roman Empire, was that it doesn't matter what earthly institutions think about us, how they treat us, or how they make us operate. Jesus wins. The kingdom wins and all earthly empires, all earthly empires will bow their knee to the king of glory or the future generations will pay a couple bucks and walk through their ruins. And then I went back to the United States and I was like, oh my gosh, in the United States, like we have to bake cakes for these people and bathrooms can be used like this. And what are we going to do about this? And I was like, oh, everybody breathe, everybody breathe. The triune God of the universe never gets anxious. He never gets nervous and things are never out of his control. So he's not looking at your situation wherever you are and worried about how it's going to play out. You got that? He, he never looks at your life, uh, uh, the ministry he's given you and, and needed to huddle up and ask who was kind of responsible for that. Like who was supposed to be watching out for that person, right? Uh, all suffering is but for a moment, if necessary, I want to just steep my life in these truths. Following Jesus Christ wasn't my idea. He came and found me. I was looking to be wealthy with some sweet rides, a nice house, and a couple of wives. He loved me too much for that. And when did that love begin? Certainly not while I was at my worst, because the Bible tells me that's actually when he saved me. Right? While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. It wasn't me at my best. It wasn't me going, I think I should be a better human than this one. I didn't even know I was a bad human. But the grace of God fell upon me. So I want to just be reminded of that. God called me. God's faithful. God hasn't forgotten me. He cannot forget me. I am of him. I want to walk in the confidence of what it means to belong to him. And so as you're thinking about what ministry looks like, those of you who are 829, you know, kind of we're rooted in this stuff. We steep in this stuff. We preach this stuff. We pray this stuff. We're hopeful in these ways. And if you're just kind of checking us out, you just need to know this is, if we seem to, to be confident, even where we are, even when things maybe aren't going the way that the world would say, this is what it looks like to be successful. Just know that it's found in these passages. 
that I am his. He is mine. And if I never preached another word and the village church disappeared off the face of the earth, his love for me would not waver. But if I were to utterly bomb every one of these messages, then, then man, my identity, my hope, it's not in you liking me or caring for me. I'm not saying I don't want that. I'm just saying I don't need that. That my security is found in my salvation because for whatever reason, God in his infinite wisdom and mercy decided to love me before the foundation of the earth was laid. So then how could I ever walk with a swagger or be arrogant? This is a, and we'll see this in the last session, this is a deeply humbling thing. Which is why if your experience with reformed people is they're cocky and arrogant and gruff, I would just say they don't quite understand what they say they believe. Because if this produces anything but lowliness, it has been misunderstood and misapplied. And so I would just say out loud that any reformed notion that leads to arrogance and cockiness is out of step with the word of God and is not then truly reformed because they believe they've arrived at some enlightenment via their own intellect. It's not how any of this works. Let me pray for us. Father, I thank you for these men and women. I just pray that you would bless us as we've gathered in your name, not just for our sessions, but even as we kind of have coffee together, as we learn one another's stories, as we kind of, I, I'm not naive enough to think that there aren't those in this room who come in here exhausted and banged up. And I just pray, breathe life into them, spirit of the living God. Build them up in love, build them up in hope, even remind them in this moment that they are seen by you. You see them, you see what's at home, you see their fears, you see their worries, and you see all of this without being disgusted or disappointed or this kind of love is so hard for us to grasp, so hard for us to believe. We know, we know that you're a loving God and yet for some reason our hearts, it, it's so hard for us to grasp that that love is actually towards us. We, we even preach it for others, but it's so hard for many of us to believe, no, 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 me. He loves me like that. I thank you that you're not just a just judge, but a heavenly father. I thank you that wherever we were, you came and found us. For some of us, it was mom and dad talking to us about Jesus and the beauty of Christ from the, from the crib on up to when you opened up our heart to believe. But many of us, it was a friend, it was a neighbor, it was a coworker. You, you found us and you saved us. And I just ask that you would um, remind our hearts as we've gathered today that you've never regretted that. You don't see us now and, and want to redo. That you delight in us as we are, half-hearted, broken, tired. So I thank you for your fatherly love for us. Just help us believe it. It's easier for us to believe that you forgive us than it is to believe that you actually love us, maybe even like us. And so I pray, Spirit of the living God, convince us that your word is true rather than our insecurity and build us up in your love as we've gathered. I just pray that as we're prone to kind of be playful and somewhat snarky this week, we might find instead uh, a lot of encouraging words and sentences and phrases coming out of our mouths to our brothers and sisters. We thank you that one day every knee will bow, every tongue will confess, and in 2018 we can just look and see how true your promises are. And it's for your beautiful name. Amen. Thank you.